This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this interview. We are recording on Friday the 13th of March, Australian time, and we're seeing chaos in the markets overseas. And to talk about his investing journey, but I think we're going to get into what's happening these days as well. We have an American fund manager joining us. Yes, we have your own Neymark from One Main Capital over in the US. Your own, thanks for your time. Thank you for the distraction on a bloody red day. <laughs> yeah, Friday 13th, like yeah. over here. Market's not open in Australia at the moment, but if it's anything to go by what's going on over in the US and Europe overnight, we're in for an absolute bloodbath again today. I think the Dow Jones is officially in a bear market as of yesterday or the day before. So yeah, looking forward to this conversation. And the S&P 500 is in a bear market as of today. There you go. Sea of red. (laughs) Yeah. ASX likely to follow this morning. Yeah. So your own is a portfolio manager at One Main Capital, a US-based asset manager. He has over 10 years of experience in in markets and finance. Before working at One Main, your own worked at Citibank, HIG Capital, and Glen Hill Capital as well. So a lot of experience, and we're looking forward to delving into that a little bit. But before we do, I'll flick it over to Ren for a bit of a game. Yeah, so your own, we always like to start these interviews with a game, a game of overrated or underrated or overvalued, undervalued, just to get a sense of the person who we're speaking to and what they're thinking about some indexes and some investing themes that are sort of big today. If you're up for it, we'll get stuck in. Yeah, definitely. As you can hear from our accents, we're an Australian podcast. And look, fair enough if you don't have an answer on this one because you're not too close to it. But we'll start with it. Overrated or underrated, the ASX 200 index, which is the benchmark Australian index. Yeah, I'll go with overrated. I think if you invested in any of the major non-US indices over the last 10 years, you're probably flat on your investment with a lot of volatility along the way. So I tend to think of most of them as overrated. So then overrated or underrated the S&P 500? I will go with 
overrated again. I mean, that's one of the indices that has performed well over the last 10, 15 years, but that was driven uh, by a large degree to the tech and FANG stocks, which I guess that they've become such a big part of the index at this point. And I mean, I guess given, given the law of large numbers, it's, it's really tough to imagine that you can assume forward returns will equal past returns. And on top of that, I mean, everyone's long SPX and it's not the only way to skin a cat, and that's kind of boring to, to be long what everyone else is long. So, so I'll go with overrated on that one as well. Fair enough. So as we said, we're having this conversation in a sea of red, and a lot of that has been driven by coronavirus concerns. So putting aside the impact on financial markets, which we're seeing play out in front of us, overrated or underrated coronavirus's impact on the economy? Yeah, I would say, I mean, it's, it's kind of tough to disconnect what the markets are saying from what the economic impact is because the markets are trying to discount the economic impact. I would say that a few weeks ago, the economic impact definitely underrated. Today, frankly, I mean, probably going to get a lot of criticism from people, from people I know for saying this because everyone thinks it's the end of the world, but I think it's a bit overrated at this point. I mean, it doesn't mean that the stock market can't go lower. People, you know, even not looking at the stock market can't freak out any more than they're already freaking out. They probably will, and the market may go lower. But I think that there's lots of situations out there where people are buying, you know, eight months worth of toilet paper to leave at home, for example. Um, and I just don't think it's going to be that bad. I mean, I've been getting tech friends all over the country telling me to go to the ATM. I'm in New York City, but they're telling me to go to the ATM and take out cash and go to the supermarket and buy six months worth of canned beans. And I, I just... Maybe I'm, maybe I'm an optimist, but I just don't think it's going to get that bad. You know, it's unfortunate for the elderly and whoever gets it that has a bunch of risk factors that makes it risky for them. But for the average person, it's not going to be as bad as the, as the texts I'm getting imply. It's almost as if Christmas has come for the doomsday preppers that we saw on, t you know, that TV show over in the States a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even a, even a broken clock is, is uh, right twice a day, right? So if, if you're calling for the end of the world, every year or every month or every week you're eventually going to get it right and um, <laughs> not saying this is the end of the world but you know anyone who's been calling for the end of the world for weeks and months and years definitely did not see this one coming so no. they don't even get credit for that so overrated or underrated index investing i'm going to be boring because i'm going to say overrated for everything i mean i think i think index investing is overrated i mean i touched on it when you asked about the asx but i mean if you had bought and held almost any major index except for the NASDAQ or the S&P 500 over the last five years, you'd probably be pretty disappointed in, in your results. And if you were able to find some of the winning stocks, even within those bad indices that had disappointing results, you could have done incredibly well. So I'll, I'll go with overrated for index investing. Yeah, nice one. Now, the last one to close us out, overrated or underrated, US treasuries? Definitely overrated. I mean, the target inflation rate in the U.S. is 2% and long-term treasuries yield 1%. And so if you buy long-term treasuries, you're betting against the government achieving a target that it's very clearly laying out for you. And it's totally within the government's control. I mean, they could print money whenever they want to. So, I mean, they might not achieve their inflation target today or tomorrow, but if you're buying a 30-year bond, I can almost assure you they're going to achieve a 2% inflation target over 30 years. 
And so you're basically guaranteed to lose money in, in real terms. So, I mean, I think anyone who's buying bonds today, whether they're euro bonds or U.S. bonds, I think they either have to own them or they're playing a greater full game. And they think that, you know, someone else is they're buying it at a one percent yield and they think someone else is going to buy it from them at a half a percent yield in three months because Corona is going to get so bad. I don't think anyone actually you know, any anyone who does not force to own it, if you're a bank or something, you might be forced to own it. But any investor that's not a bank that's forced to own it, if you're buying a two percent treasury today or one percent treasury today, I don't think you're happy making one percent for 30 years. I think you think it's going to go up by 20 percent in the next six months because Corona is going to get really bad. And then you could sell it to someone up 20. And so it's a greater pool game. And I don't know, I man, it's not not the way I like to make money. <laughs> so, Jerome, before we get into one main capital, we always like to take a step back and understand a bit about your background. And we're really interested in understanding the story behind your first investment. So you're able to take us back to when that was and perhaps if there are any major lessons from that first investment that you've carried through to today. Yeah. So I guess background and then and then uh, first investment. I grew up in the States to immigrant parents. They ran a very small business, but they had a lot of friends that had larger businesses. And I grew up, you know, surrounded by business people who had all kinds of conversations about the problems of the day or their growing pains. And so I was exposed to it at a very young age. I've always been passionate about business and and then later on investing. Did a lot of reading in my high school and college days about the investing grades and which has always found it very intriguing. So that's kind of how I got into investing. And in terms of my first investment, I'm not going to say the name of it, but I'll give you the story just in case my family friend listens. But um, <laughs> it was in during the dot-com bubble. I was pretty young and I had a family friend who at the dinner table with a bunch of my parents' friends was talking about a stock where they knew someone who knew someone who was the CEO of this company. And they said, it's a screaming buy and the stock's going higher. And, and I, you know, I told my dad, we need to open an investment account and put a few hundred bucks in it because the stock was going to go to the moon. And my dad agreed to let me do it. And we bought a few hundred bucks worth of the stock and it proceeded to go down like 90%. And our family friend kept, you know, kept talking about it for months and, and kept doubling down and losing a lot of money in it. But I guess the lesson I took away from that was you have to know what you own and you can't borrow someone else's conviction. You know, even if someone is pounding the table telling you something's a buy, they're going to forget to call and let you know the second they sell it if they change their mind. And if they don't change their mind and they're doubling down all the way down to zero, I mean, you, you're not going to know if they're wrong if you don't have your own conviction. So that's the takeaway. Sounds similar to Alex's first <laughs> investment. He lost, I, th- I think, lost 99%. Yeah. <laughs> He's lost so much on his first investment four years ago that he can't even cover the brokerage to, to sell, sell it. it. <laughs> you know what? It's kind of like, I think it's probably a blessing to lose money on your first investment because then you realize it's it's not supposed to be easy and you need to do it's a lot of hard work and you need to know why you own something. It's I would say it's kind of like going to the casino. You know, if, if you make money the first time you play blackjack, you just think investing is easy or, or gambling is easy and it's just easy to take money from the casino and that that that's you know starts you off with some pretty bad habits out of the gate. So I think it's pretty humbling to lose money in your first investment. So congrats. Yeah, <laughs> completely agree. Your own. There's obviously a, a lot of members in our community who have started their investing journey quite recently, towards the sort of peak of 
the most recent market and are now probably feeling quite disheartened about the whole thing, watching some hard-earned cash fall away pretty quickly. And to your point about losing money on your first trade, it's not, you know, the be-all and end-all. What sort of, I guess, small piece of advice would you have to these people who are watching their first investments fade away pretty quickly? Yeah, I mean, I would say I touched on it a second ago, but I would say it's not supposed to be easy. If it was easy, you know, then everyone would do it and everyone would be rich and then it wouldn't mean anything to be rich. And I think that investing is just, it's a lot more than picking the right stock. If you're actually trying to manage a portfolio, you need to put a lot of thought into the portfolio construction, you know, what industries you're exposed to, what types of economic risks you're exposed to. And just think about portfolio construction and, and risk management in addition to the individual stocks you're picking. And then I guess a lot of people who I speak to about investments who are kind of new to it, they kind of come at it from the ends of the spectrum from what I've noticed. I mean, some people come at it purely from a narrative perspective. It's just, you know, they, they hear the story about this company that's going to change the world and they're not really paying attention to the, the valuation or the price of that story. And then other people are purely focused on valuation and, and you know, pay a lot less attention to the little, the little details that, that really matter. Um, and I would say um, it is to everyone, but combi- combining the two is, is very, imp- very important. And then I guess tangential to that, I mean, the game of asset management is just, it's a game of constant refinement. You know, the more you play, the better you get. And it's only after you've looked at, at thousands of investments and you've made a lot of errors of omission or errors of commission that you start to pick up on small nuances that you might have missed, you know, you might have missed earlier on in your investing career that can be really big deals when you're trying to differentiate between different opportunities you're looking at, whether it's, you know, the quality of the management team, the durability of the growth of the business, the returns on reinvested capital, industry structures. There's just so many nuances within each of those buckets that are very meaningful that I think, you know, the more reps you can get and the more names you could look at, the, the better you're going to be over time. I like that. I like that. It's the sort of 10,000 hours rule applied to investing. You just have to, exactly. have to put the time in, do the work. I guess looking at your background, you have done the work. You've worked at a number of asset managers and you've, you know, as Bryce said in the introduction, over 10 years in the finance game. So for speaking to two people who aren't in finance and who have never worked in finance, can you tell us some of the things that retail investors like Bryce and I misunderstand about the world of professional asset management? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the things I touched on, I mean, it's it's not supposed to be easy. You know, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it and then it would be meaningless for it to be for you to do better than the averages. And it, it requires a lot of time and, you know, a lot of reps, like I said. I mean, it's just a game of constant, constant refinement of your strategy. And no two people are alike. No two people have the same exact strategy. No two people have the same exact risk tolerance. And sometimes something might be in your sweet spot that's not in someone else's sweet spot. And you just need to learn what, where your sweet spots are and how you're comfortable making money. And um, there's some very important kind of high level, important things that every great investor has in common. And a lot of them have to do with risk management and understanding what makes stocks go up or down. But I would say just continue continue to spend time studying the qualities that work for you in, in, in investments, and you're going to continue to get better over time, I would say. Yeah, I like that. I like that. So 
moving to your work at One Main Capital, if we start broad, can you tell us what your investing philosophy is at One Main? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah, so one man is, it's a long biased investment fund. I found it about two years ago and it makes investments in a combination of long-term quality and, and then shorter term special situations. I lean towards the compounders all else equal. So if there's, you know, a, an abundance of opportunities to look at, I tend to look at the longer term compounders first. The fund is fairly concentrated. And because it's fairly concentrated, I look for strong downside protection in any investment I make, whether it's in the form of a reasonable valuation and, and strong durability of the business, high current cash generation, and where I have a high confidence in the growth outlook of the business. And so... In terms of why I like uh, compounders, I mean, I guess the way I, the way I think about it is there are basically two ways you can make money as an investor, and and the first is capital appreciation, which basically means the stock goes up, and the other is you can take cash out of the business in the form of dividends. In companies, they're rarely priced in a way where you can get a high dividend yield without something that's pretty obviously broken about the business. So I tend to throw those out just for the sake of simplicity. And so if you throw those out and to make good returns, you basically need the stock price to go up for capital appreciation. Stocks go up for one of two reasons, either a company's earnings goes up or um, the multiple that the market describes to those earnings goes up. And except when multiples are at extreme, whether they're very low or, or very high, it's, it's kind of hard to predict a change in multiples. So, and typically, I guess if they are at extreme, so if they're, if multiples are very, very low or if multiples are very, very high, I guess you can kind of bet on the change in the multiple because extremes, you know, tend to mean revert. And so if, if you buy something with a low multiple, you have the optionality for that multiple to go up, which is enticing to a lot of value investors. But typically for buying something with a low multiple, while you have the optionality of the multiple going up, it's typically at that low multiple because the quality of the earnings or the growth trajectory of the earnings or the balance sheet, there's some issue with them. So similar to the high dividend yielding stocks, if you just, you kind of, I tend to 
you know, except for the special situations where typically I have a nuanced view on what, why I think they're priced the way they are and why I think that could change. I tend to, from the long-term compounder perspective, I tend to throw out the, the extremes. And so I, I tend to look at companies that are right in the middle of pack in terms of valuation. And for those opportunities, they tend to be high quality businesses that have very predictable growth in their earnings profile or earnings per share profile. And when, when you find those, they're great because, you know, you could you could underwrite a multiple that you're comfortable with owning the, the business at. And then if they could grow its earnings per share at a 15 or 20 or 25 percent clip over over an extended period of time, you're basically putting the multiple expansion or contraction aside, which, like I said, is very tough to predict. I mean, typically, long term compounders hold their multiple and then you can kind of grow your capital with capital appreciation with the earnings per share growth. So. The beauty of buying those types of businesses is that you get to know the business very well. They tend to be higher quality. You don't need to replace them as soon as they work. I mean, if you buy a special situation for a dollar and then it doubles six months later to $2 and you sell it, you need to find something new to replace it with. And that, that new thing you find, you know, you're not as familiar with it. It might be a lower quality business. You might not even be able to find anything at all. And there's a lot of mistakes you could make. The more action you take in investing, the more you expose yourself to mistakes that you could potentially make. So it's it's much easier and, and safer, in my opinion, if you buy something at 20 times earnings that you think can grow earnings per share at 20% a year for 10 years than to buy something at 10 times earnings that you hope can go to 20, but it could go to eight and the earnings might actually go down instead of up. That's why it's selling for 10. And you know, the mar other market participants tend to be pretty smart. Markets aren't efficient always, but over the long term, they tend to be. And so if something is selling for 10 times earnings, a lot of other market participants have probably picked over it and tried figuring out whether 10 times was too cheap. And if they left it at 10 times, then a lot of times there's a reason. So I think with special situations, you need to have a much more nuanced view on, on why it's going to work. Whereas for compounder and you need to get up to speed more quickly you're you're exposing yourself to more risks and with compounders you get to know the business for longer and you don't you know you don't need to make reinvestments as, as frequent so that's why i tend to lean towards those in all situations i tend to look for you know a reasonable value entry valuation strong management team strong balance sheets and a business that can withstand the test of time so that, that's kind of what the strategy is so at the time of research, your biggest holding was RC1 Hospitality, uh, ticker R-I-C-K. Uh, correct us if that has changed since, but it would be great to use that as an example as to why you sort of chose that stock and, and how it sort of fits what you've just explained. Are you able to talk us through sort of the process and, and reason companies are effectively your biggest holding? Yeah, of course. So it's RCI Hospitality, not RC1. Oh, sorry. Oh, it's fine. It was my biggest holding by far as we entered the year. It's been hit pretty hard with this corona sell-off. And so it organically declined to become a smaller than my top position. It's still up there. It's probably a top three or four still, but it's no longer my top position, unfortunately. But I'm happy to use that as an example. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a great example of a business that when I bought it, I entered a, a very attractive entry valuation, and it had a lot of the qualities I look for in compounders. So it's a great case study. I, I still think it's very interesting, even with this corona sell-off. And so it's basically a business that 
owns gentlemen's clubs in the U.S. It owns about three dozen of them across the states, and it also owns um, restaurant uh, sports bar, like military-themed sports bar concepts called Bombshells, which is a much smaller part of the business. And so the stock sells for a pretty cheap valuation today, but even before the corona sell-off, it was selling for a very low multiple on its maintenance-free cash flow. And just to give you context, the maintenance-free cash flow of the business is about you know mid-30s millions of dollars today, so probably call it $35 million of maintenance-free cash flow. That's, that's cash flow from operations, less maintenance capex. And the market cap of the of the company when I my 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 cost basis in the company is probably at a market cap of under two hundred million dollars. So I was able at a two hundred million dollar market cap to buy a stream of over thirty million dollars of free cash flow. So that's a very entry that's a very attractive entry valuation. And so when you hear a valuation like that, you typically think, okay, that's probably a low quality business. Like why else are you able to buy this for a single digit cash flow free cash flow multiple? And so when you when you peel back the onion, it's actually not a low quality business. I mean, their nightclub segment is a very protected business. They tend to have their licenses, their liquor licenses, and their and their licenses to operate these gentlemen's clubs are grandfathered into place. And the places where they own these clubs, they tend to be either the top club or the only club in those cities. And it's impossible to get new licenses. I mean, no new cities want to approve new gentlemen's clubs in, in those cities. So there's really no new competition that could pop up. They have great reputations, great brands, and the nightclubs just just mint cash. So from a quality of business standpoint, high quality of business. From a management standpoint, the CEO of the company is great. He's built the company over several decades. He started with one location and kind of gradually built it up to over three dozen today. He has a vast majority of his net worth invested in the stock. He really cares about shareholders and the stock price. And so management team, check. And then in terms of, you know, can they compound their capital at attractive rates over a long period of time? The answer to that is is a resounding yes. I mean, he is able to take that $30 million, $35 million of free cash flow that the business generates, and he reinvests it in acquisitions of other nightclubs. And those acquisitions, he tends to buy clubs at, I don't know, three, four, five times EBITDA. And a lot of times they're 100% financed by banks and seller notes. And so the returns on equity of those investments are extremely high. I mean, they're 20, 30, 40% on equity sometimes. The most recent acquisition he did, the CEO of the company reached an agreement to buy a nightclub in the Northeast quarter of the U.S. I've narrowed it down a bit. I think it's I think it's a Boston club. I'm not 100% certain, but I think it is. And and then they announced that they were buying this club for 50 million dollars and they were able to get financing for the whole 15 million so the company is actually putting up none of its own equity and that club is going to contribute a couple million dollars of free cash flow so they're putting up no i mean that's an infinite return on equity right and so they're but but for the most part they're able to take their 35 million dollars of free cash flow they reinvest it back into these nightclubs at very attractive entry valuations as well as their bombshells restaurant concept, which also has a very attractive return profile. And I'll, I'll touch on that for a second. The bombshell segment, it's like I said, it's a military themed sports bar concept. And they basically, their cost to build those locations is probably 4 million bucks. They tend to buy the underlying real estate in their nightclub segment, as well as the restaurant segment. And so they're able to get a mortgage on the property. And then the equipment that goes into the restaurant, they're able to get capital leases on. 
And so the actual equity that the company needs to put up to open one of these locations could be like one to two million bucks tops. And those locations generate five, six, seven million dollars of revenue and 20% operating margin. So call it a million to a million five of, of operating profit on a one to two million dollar investment from the company. So again, very high returns on equity. So if you roll this picture forward, you know, three, four, five years where he takes his $30 million of free cash flow that he generates every year, reinvests it into nightclub acquisitions and bombshells development, it's very easy to see how free cash flow per share is going to grow at very high rates over the next three, four, five years. And the beauty is when you buy in at a low entry valuation, you have the, the optionality of the multiple going up. I don't think from a fundamentals perspective, you have much downside front in, in terms of the multiple going down. Obviously, the multiple got hit over the last few weeks because everyone's worried that coronavirus is going to shut down the clubs and restaurants. But you know, hopefully, that's a very short-term issue for the business. And putting that aside, I think that there's a lot more upside to the multiple than there was. I mean, it, if corona hadn't come, I didn't think there was any downside to the multiple. Obviously, the multiple went lower because of Corona. But without Corona, I didn't think there was much downside to the multiple. And I could see a lot of upside as the market starts to appreciate the company's ability to reinvest these attractive returns. The other question is, okay, if this is such a high quality business with a good management team and the ability to reinvest at these high rates of return, why does it sell for such a low entry valuation? And and I, I guess a lot of times that's, you know, that's the biggest question to ask because sometimes you know, m most of the times, if something is too good to be true, it probably is. And so you have to really understand why that opportunity is being offered to you by the market. And the conclusion I've come to, which I've spent three years following the company now, and I'm, I'm pretty confident in my conclusion, is that there's a few reasons. One is I think a lot of institutional investors are hesitant or can't own a company that operates gentlemen's clubs. I think that if you're taking money from pensions or foreign governments or whatever. It's just hard to go and tell your LPs that you own this. <laughs> it's kind of true. And it's a pretty small and illiquid stock as well. So the universe of managers who can even look at it from a liquidity perspective is pretty small. And then the other the other thing is that the company has had a history. You know, the CEO, while I think he's a very good capital allocator now, this company has been public for a very long time. And the CEO wasn't always a good capital allocator. You know, he built this from the ground up, from one location to two locations to five locations to 10 locations. And when he first became a public company CEO, he was getting told a lot of different things on what he needed to do to get a stock price up from a lot of different people. And I don't think he really had a great handle on, on what the right answer was. I think he thought that he needed to grow the, the top line of the business just for the sake of growth and didn't really spend a lot of time focusing on free cash flow per share growth of the business. So he issued a lot of equity to do acquisitions when the equity was cheap and the acquisitions he was doing were less cheap. He invested in these pet projects that had the potential to accelerate revenue growth, but didn't have a good risk reward profile. And so he did a lot of things for a long period of time that kind of put the company on a path to not grow free cash flow per share at very attractive rates. That changed about four years ago when a big shareholder of the company came and presented to the board on what they needed to do to get the stock price up. And it, it resonates with me because when he told me a story, I was like, wow, I mean, this guy really gets it now. The shareholder came to the board with a presentation titled Do Nothing. That was the title of the presentation. And they were like, look, you traded at this absurdly low valuation on free cash flow. And you're doing all these things trying to get your stock up. Like 
you need to just do nothing. If you do nothing, stop making, stop putting, you're, you're making, you know, back then it wasn't 30 million bucks. Maybe it was 15 or 20 million bucks of free cash flow. If you're taking that and burning it on dumb pet projects that aren't good, good investments, right. And they're not generating good returns on that, on those investments, you're not going to be growing your free cash flow and investors aren't going to ascribe a high multiple to the free cash flow because you're just burning it on dumb things. So just do nothing and your valuation should go up. And on top of doing nothing, if you find opportunities where you could invest at these attractive returns, like buying clubs at X valuation or buying your stock back if it trades at Y valuation, then that's when it makes sense. They told the, they told the management team also to read this book called Outsiders, which is a, a book about capital allocation. And when you talk to the management team now about how they think about deploying capital, I mean, it's night and day from the transcripts you read pre-2016 when they implemented this capital allocation strategy. And so if you look back at the stock price over 15 years, you might be like, well, it hasn't done that well. Like, why hasn't it done that well? And you can, you can very easily dismiss it as a stock that just historically hasn't done that well. And, and it's always not going to do that well. And, and, and so I think you need to pick up on, on that change that happened in 2016. And then when they implemented that strategy in 2016, it actually started to work. I mean, the stock went from 10 bucks to 35 bucks in like 18 months. The stock went up three and a half X. The CEO, who has most of his net worth tied up in the company, didn't sell any stock during that period. So it shows you he believes that the value creation opportunity was real, even at 35 bucks. And then in mid-2018, the company started getting attacked by this anonymous short seller on Seeking Alpha, who actually brought up some valid criticisms of the company, but also just said a lot of things that were just frankly untrue and inaccurate. But the, the valid criticisms that they said about the company were that the company had a bunch of related party transactions that it wasn't disclosing to investors. And so that led to the SEC opening up uh, a formal investigation into those related party transactions. And when the company announced that, the auditor also basically resigned when, you know, at the end of that internal review that the company had to do to look into those allegations. And so you had a situation where the SEC opens an investigation and an auditor resigns. And all that just looks really bad to investors who are already having a hard time justifying ownership of this to their LPs. And so the stock sold off from 35 down to like 14, 15 bucks on that. Since that point in time, I scaled into the position. I mean, it was a position for me, a decent sized position, but I made it really big, you know, in the, in the teens after that happened. And the reason I was comfortable to, to scale it to such a large position was the company actually hired an international law firm to lead an internal review into all the allegations made by the short sellers. And that international law firm, the attorney in charge of it was a former U.S. attorney who had the authority to look into anything and everything that he found relative to, to those allegations. He was able to look into text messages, emails, and, and he, after uh, several, I think it was like six-month review, he came out, he allowed the company to come out with an AK describing his findings. And in those findings, it basically said that, yes, they had some related party transactions that they didn't disclose that should have been disclosed. For example, the CEO's brother was selling furniture to the Bombshells restaurants. And another example is the president of the nightclub division was the brother of a board member of the company that wasn't disclosed also. And so you had all these I would call them minor things. I mean, that weren't if I knew about them, if they were appropriately disclosed, I wouldn't have thought twice about them. But because they weren't disclosed, it looked bad. And, and, and I understand why the SEC had to open an investigation with the company. But importantly, none of those things 
had an impact on the company's income statement or cash flow statement or balance sheet that they had previously filed with the SEC. So like the cash that they said they generated, they actually generated the earnings. They said they generated, they actually generated. They just didn't disclose that, you know, the, the president of the nightclub division was the brother of a board member. And so once those disclosures were made, I got comfortable that, you know, the earnings were real. And now it's just a matter of time between now and when the SEC investigation formally concludes and the stock could potentially start to get its, its mojo back. And in the meantime, the company is growing its free cash flow per share at these incredibly attractive rates because it's able to reinvest in these nightclub acquisitions at low multiples and these restaurants at very high returns on invested capital. And so that was the thesis. Now with this coronavirus throwing a wrench into things, I mean, so just to kind of round out that the initial part of the thesis, I mean, this year, the company was finally starting to get back on track. It filed its 10K. It wasn't able to file its 10K on time while all this drama was going on. And they were finally able to file their 10K. And when they filed their 10K, the stock started and went from, you know, 18 bucks a share. It got up to 26, 27 bucks a share by like mid-February. So it was up a lot year to date. And then this corona fear started dominating the headlines and the stock came back from 25, 26 bucks down to like 11 bucks right now. And that, that's why it's not my biggest position anymore. I think the baby's kind of been thrown out with the bathwater, in my opinion. I mean, I understand why restaurant and leisure stocks have sold off the way they have. If you look at most of them, a lot of them don't own a lot of their real estate or any of their real estate. So they have these big lease liabilities. And if traffic is down in their restaurants, they still need to make those lease payments. And some of them have debt and they don't have a lot of cash on their balance sheet. And so it can get really scary really quickly from a liquidity perspective. And all of a sudden, people are worrying about the solvency of the businesses. And, and RCI doesn't really, really doesn't have a solvency issue. The biggest question mark is how big is the impact going to be near term and how long will it last for? But the company owns you know, 80% of, its, of the real estate underlying its clubs. Its rent expense for the lease locations is very low. Its interest expense on its debt comes out to less than 10 million bucks a year. And so the company has enough cash on the balance sheet right now to probably last over a year if they have to shut down all their locations for full 12 months. And even if they have to shut down all their locations for longer than 12 months, they own so much of the real estate that they could probably do sale leasebacks or take additional mortgages on their real estate. And on top of that, like their locations are geographically diversified. So they have their big markets are Texas, Florida, and New York. So you would have to think that Texas, Florida, and New York all have to shut down for 18, 24 months for this company to be insolvent or to, for it to be equity to be impaired in some way. So I think it's unfortunate the stock is sold off, but I think it's an incredibly interesting opportunity right here. If anyone takes a look at it, I'm happy to answer any questions anyone has. Feel free to e email me. My email address is on the website. But right now, I mean, I think that there's a path to them generating close to 40 million bucks of free cash flow next year, just with what they own. Assuming, you know, if Corona is confined to a 2020 issue, then in 2021, with just their current restaurant and nightclub base, I think they're doing close to 40 million of annual free cash flow. They'll probably have 8 million shares outstanding. So you're looking at about five bucks a share of, of free cash flow per share next year, and the stock's at 11 bucks. So it's at like two and two times free cash flow right now, which is very, very cheap for a company with high insider ownership and the ability to reinvest at nice rates of return. So I, I think that's a pretty good example of the types of investments I look at, ones that could compound. You know, I think it's one that 
if it went from 11 back to 26 or and from 26 to 45, I wouldn't necessarily look to sell it and try to find, you know, recycle the capital into other opportunities. Because I think even at 45 bucks, they can grow their free cash flow per share at 20% a year for the foreseeable future. And so I'm happy, even if the multiple goes up from two times or what it was before, six times to 12 or 13 times, I'm happy to own it at 13 times because I think it can hold that multiple and I think it can grow its free, its free cash flow per share at 20%. So hopefully that, you know, was a good summary. But if you have any questions, I'm happy to follow up. Yeah, very comprehensive summary. It's fascinating just how much detail we can go into for one stock that runs gentlemen's clubs with a $100 million market cap. And it just makes yeah. you think that every stock, you know, all 5,000 publicly traded in the US all have such deep stories like that. And so I guess the question right. that comes to my mind is, when you're dealing with this universe of 5,000 stocks, what's your stock discovery process? Like, how are you deciding that I'm going to focus my time on pretty small nightclub operator with, you know, that's, that's sort of in this market niche that not many people think of? Like, how do you even get to doing such deep research on that company? Yeah, I mean, a genuinely curious person about business, which makes it easy. So when I see a product or a service being sold or provided, I naturally think, you know, what's the business model for that? Who, you know, are there competitors? Is this a good business or a bad business? That, that just comes naturally to me. But in terms of filtering through, you know, investments, potential investments that I actually want to spend time on, I have a wide funnel. It could be anywhere from a stock screen on Bloomberg or, you know, I have a lot of friends who work at different funds that I talk to on a regular basis to ask them what they're looking at. Could be a Wall Street Journal article about something that makes me, you know, piques my interest. I'm a member of a members only forum called the Microcap Club where people discuss microcap investment opportunities. So the funnel is very wide. And then my filters, it tends to be very quick. I mean, I think that if you've been doing it for long enough, you can very quickly figure out if something is worth spending more time on or not. And I think it's important to have a filter to be able to filter things quickly because I give this example to, to lots of people, but you know, when I first started as an analyst at a hedge fund, my PMs would say, hey, I, I heard about this opportunity from a friend, and why don't you take a look at it and let me know if you think it's interesting. And the first thing I would do is I would, I would be like, all right, I, I really want to understand like, the financial model. So I would open up Excel, and I would open up the 10K, and I would start modeling it and try to understand what happened to the financials over the last five to 10 years, and how cyclical is this business, and what's the operating leverage on, on revenue growth or revenue declines. And like, then I would, you know, I would sit down and I would be ready to talk about it with my PMs. And they would be like, Oh, like, it says in the 10k that they have a customer that's 47% of their sales, like, would we even look at this? And I would be like, Oh, man, why did I just spend, you know, half a day modeling this business? And so those, those are the types of filters, you learn to look very quickly through the things that could be potential deal breakers, because the more the quick, the more quickly you can say no to something, the more time you have left over to do research on the ones that fall in the yes pile. And so, I mean, that's just kind of, it's a lot of no's and then eventually something falls in the yes pile. When it falls in the yes pile, I start digging in and spending a lot of time through Google searches or talking to my friends at other funds who may have looked at it and trying to read industry reports. And the second it becomes, and a lot of times, you know, midway through or three quarters of the way through, then it turns into a no based on something I learned in my research process. And then it goes into the no pile and I move on to something else. But I think filtering quickly through the, the, the things that are obvious 
and um, and having a broad network and just being genuinely curious are kind of the things I would I would point out. Nice. We've reached our time, unfortunately, but we always like to wrap up with three final questions that we always ask our guests at the end of the show. So the first one is, do you have any must-read books that our audience should get around investing or otherwise? Yeah, I really like behavioral psychology books. I think they're great for investing. So I would say books like uh, Predictably Irrational, Thinking Fast and Slow are great. And from an investing standpoint, I don't know. I mean, I think when I first started, a book called The Little Book That Beats the Market actually helped me a lot. I know it sounds kind of dumb, but but I thought it was awesome. So We've read that as well. Uh, great, great little book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, great. it's good. Where do you go for your investing information? I'm a Bloomberg subscriber. I go out there every day. I talk to friends all the time. I go to the Microcap Club, which is an awesome resource for anyone looking at small cap names. Highly recommend it. And yeah, I just read the newspaper. I, I, anytime I go into a store or go to a restaurant that I like or see a new product that I like, I kind of Google it to see if it's a public company. And if it's a public company, I kind of want to know what its financials are like. If I hear a company going public, I, I pull up the S1. So I would say just, I mean, Google is an amazing resource and that's a good place to start for any company. No, it's good. Using your surroundings as a source of information and inspiration, certainly something that we try to instill on the show. And finally, thinking back to your to your time when you put some money in, into the uh, tech stock, any advice for your younger self? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I mentioned it earlier, but you can't borrow someone else's conviction because they're not going to tell you when they sold. And if they're wrong, they're not, they might not recognize something that you might have recognized. So I think you need to have your own conviction, anything you own. I think you need to study as many of the investing grades as possible because like I said earlier, there's there's so many ways to, to skin the cat and each person has kind of their own style, their own nuances of it. So the more you read about different styles, the more you could kind of figure out, you know, this works for them, that resonates with me, this might work for me. You know, it's all about trial and error repetitions, like I said. I mean, the more mistakes and the more wins you, you make, the better you'll become over time. That's great advice. Now, Yaron, thanks for taking the time. We really appreciate it. We could have gone deep on a a lot more stocks, but unfortunately, that's all the time we have. But if people do want to hear more about you or read more of your work and, you know, see you going deep on other stocks and other industries, are there any places that they should be going, you know, Twitter or your website or anything like that? Yeah, I mean, you you could reach out to me on Twitter. I have open DMs. It's the the Twitter handle is one main capital, and that's the number one, the word main, M-A-I-N, capital. And uh, my website as well, it's www.onemaincapital.com. And my email address is there, so feel free to reach out via email or through Twitter. Nice one. Well, thanks for taking the time. As we said at the top of the show, it seems to be chaos in the markets there. So we appreciate you taking the time off watching the the Sea of Red to talk to us. And, you know, hopefully we can do this again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks for the time, guys. Stay safe out there. (laughs) We'll try. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Yaron. Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of Equity Mates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.